This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am in Placentia, California today for episode 205 of the podcast and standing across from me in this beautiful barrel cellar surrounded by aging beer is Jeremy Grinke, director of production for The Brewery. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Uh, Jamie, thank you. Thanks for thanks for coming out here to beautiful Placentia, California. Who else could it be but The Brewery? Absolutely. It's, uh, I've been here a number of times before over the years. You know, we've uh, over the years, we've talked to the to folks from the brewery, various folks uh, about high gravity brewing, various other subjects. Obviously, I've come and seen you out of the brewery true before. Uh, I was counting on, 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 you know, connecting with you every year at the uh, Firestone Walker Invitational because that's just something we tend to come out for. And then the last two years hasn't happened. And so I was like, you know, I needed to make a trip out to LA. Here we are. And I'm glad we can talk about this. Um, we've talked in the past about brewing um, wine beer hybrids. We're going to talk a little bit about that on the episode. Um, now that you are overseeing all production and all barrel aging and, and whatnot for the brewery, we can actually talk about some of those shifts in uh, dessert focused uh, stouts and bigger beers uh you know you all have had to kind of move strategy around that and change some ideas about what you brew based on what uh what audiences are responding to these days we can talk a little bit about that uh, and we can uh, yeah kind of walk through some of the kind of complex high gravity sour fun projects that you all do and things you've learned in the process uh before we do that like your flagship beer, you can rely on G&D chillers for the same quality and consistency G&D guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. They never stop. They draft. They craft. They service each and every brewery, big or small, all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, G&D has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. Also, even the best yeast deserve a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention, it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder and pure seltzer nutrient, or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So Jeremy, we normally kick off the podcast talking about uh, your history, and uh, so walk me through what your uh, you know your pathway into the world of brewing, and then how that career has developed over the years. Yeah, um, you know I'm not I'm not a I'm not a classically trained uh, master brewer by any means. Sure, um, I am a I have an alcohol career, and I'm an alcohol maker, um, and I have you know a pathway that that is not absolutely uncommon in brewing but there's very few of us out there um that have transitioned from wine to beer um with the same sort of uh, uh production chops uh, it, i would say and and not necessarily something that i'm talking about my production chops i just mean going from making a lot of wine somewhere else to going yeah. to a, a brewery that although we do a lot of special beers and specialty beers we do make a lot of beer as well um, but yeah, I was in the uh, California wine industry for, uh, a little over 10 years, eight years as a maker and a couple years as, uh, when I first got into running a mobile packaging line, um, which got me started. And then I got my foot in the door, um, in the cellar, cellar management, fermentation management and winemaking. Um, and then I, you know, I had an opportunity to come out, come down here to Southern California and work with Patrick Rue. Um, and Patrick and I hit it off and, and, um, you know, he hired me to to launch and build out the the Teru program for the brewery, which is our sour beer program. Um, and so I came here, started the first day of January in 2015. Um, you know, helped get that program off the ground. Uh, met met and became uh, you know fantastic colleagues with with our crew here at the time, who really uh, were very very supportive and nurturing me and in, in in my new. Um, the new portion of my alcohol career. Sure. Um, 
and so that you know without that support I, I probably wouldn't have hit the ground and running as as quickly as I did um, but anyway you know just that first couple of years I I feel like we got our program off the ground we got a good start I met a lot of great people uh, and I started applying my skills to more than just sour beer sure. um, so within that I started working uh, with Andrew Bell um, who's now at Radiant Beer Company um, on our innovation program um, him and I worked side by side for a couple of years together, kind of developing our beers. Um, and now my role over the last three years is, has morphed into more barrel work with our brewery clean beer program, uh, R and D and innovation. And then more recently, you know, the, the total scope of production is falling, uh, within my wheelhouse. Now, that being said, um, stick around long enough and they'll just keep promoting you. Huh? Yeah. When you're the only option, uh, uh, but I, I would like to say that with that, like, you know, just like everything I've done, uh, in my career, you know, I, I have a high level of confidence and I, and I think I can do just about anything, but I certainly can't do anything by myself. Sure. Sure. So I have a, a really talented, uh, production management team here with me and most of us have worked together for three years or more. And then there's a couple of newer guys on the team and, um, you know, I, I feel really strongly that you know, our best work is done together. And so we're building this team and, you know, the future of the brewery looks bright. Yeah. Yeah. The brewery has an interesting model given how much of it is club focused and kind of built on, um, you know, working with that. Now, certainly beer does get out there and you do distribute beer, you know, um, you know, in varying markets, but that club and being able to make specialized beers for, you know, basically super fans is very much, you know, in that kind of wine model where wineries find, you know, build those kind of direct and inside sales. Uh, and it creates a different kind of approach. You know, it's not necessarily uh, the same kind of cyclical seasonal, um, you know, way that uh, some larger breweries might approach, a, you know, a production calendar. You know, for you all, you know, what, uh, you know, what tends to drive that creative process like um you know it's not just market research where you know our sales guys out in this market are saying we need to have this kind of beer because that's what the distributors want you all have a you know kind of take a different approach to that um where where do you all start ideating what's going to be next i mean people you know, your your customers expect creativity they expect you know some excitement and they expect new things to to keep them energized um you know how does how does that process work well, that's a great question. I think, I think it, it lies within, uh, the customer. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that it, it doesn't operate like a typical brewery and, and that's because we don't have a typical brewery customer. Mm -hmm. Um, we have, you know, six, seven, eight highlighted customers that we're trying to please, you know, we have our hoarders, uh, society membership that is, you know, our, our top tier club that, uh, we like to create brand new products for, um, we have our reserve society that in turn, we like to create new products for too, but we like to keep those products really interesting and sort of a, uh, uh, a step, if you will, into the hoarders world. And sometimes we, we have a really good hoarders beer from the year before that will, uh, then let, um, you know, the next level of club get the following year. We also have our preservation club, which is, you know, more of your typical wine club sort of model, your quarterly club, and they get they get these beers that are like, um, what we call them like brewery introductory beers, you know, like some, some really nice, like stainless steel Belgian, um, beers that are, uh, esoteric, but not, uh, hoarders level, you know, like it, there's only one bottle made per, per member. Right. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's the, the tap room customer who, who's always coming in trying to find something different and our, our pilot program really feel fuels a lot of those beers. Um, and then obviously there's our distro model, which is actually, you know, where our, most of our growth has been over the last couple of years. Sure. But essentially, um, and, and some of that is driven also by the sister brand offshoot. Correct. Um, most of it's driven by offshoot. Yeah, absolutely. The IPA brand. But I think that one of the things we have here at the brewery, uh, with having these club programs, uh, and then having the two taste rooms, one in Anaheim, one here in Placentia is we, we, per, we have our own field office per se, where, you know, these are our, not, not only are they our best customers, but they're our most vocal customers. Right. So if they like something, we'll hear about it. If we, they don't like something, we'll hear about it even stronger, you know? <laughs> sure, um, sure, and those sure. are the, those are the, the, the signals that, that tell us when we're onto something that's a winner. 
or something that's that's a pure passion project of a brewer that doesn't really translate to a consumer base which which does happen too yeah um and that's okay when you need uh 150 different beers a year you know not everything is going to be based on on analytics and, and based on what we think the consumer wants some of it's going to have to be based on what we think the next idea is yeah um i would let's talk about what how you actually evaluate those ideas and make decisions about what pathway to go down. But before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there's a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins of crushed low fills or undercarbonated cans every canning day? It's time to fill like a pro. Profill can fillers from ProBrew use rotary, true counter-pressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with minimal DO pickup. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contact at ProBrew.com today. So what does that creative process look like? Certainly you all bring ideas to the table. You, uh, you're engaged in a broader dialogue of beer. You see what other brewers are brewing. Uh, you see what people are drinking at Starbucks at, uh, you know, the, the latest latte of the season. Um, you watch, you know, how dessert trends kind of move and things grab, uh, you know, people's attentions at various times, but how, where, how do you bring those ideas in, filter through them and then create beer ideas, uh, you know, based on all of these inputs? Well, Good question. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, there's a running, a running tally, a notebook, if you will, um, that, that goes all year long with, you know, it starts with things we should have done. You know, we already yeah. have, we're in the, in the middle right now and, and just finalizing our, our release plan for all of next year. Now for distro, that's already been done, but yeah. for the direct consumer model, that's happening right now. Um, but it, you know, having a notebook going on the ideas that we missed, you know, things that, man, we should have got this in the plan, but there's already so much in the plan. There's no room for it. That goes on the idea list. Um, every year we hold an anniversary party where we make, you know, 15 to 20 one-off beers just for the anniversary. Sure. Uh, that generally is followed up directly by Firestone Invitational, right. which we showcase another six or so beers that have never been made. Uh, and then our Black Tuesday party in October same thing, another 15 to 20 beers uh, specifically for those events, not to mention all the other festivals throughout the right, year that right. we do the same thing for. So this kind of one-off beer for a special event for your best customers or some of the most prestigious festivals, like those are, we just made one of these and let's see how people respond to it. And exactly. the, things that are, the things that hit might become production it, beers. Exactly. So, you know, great example is 2019 Firestone Walker Invitational. We did a, we did a, Black Tuesday treatment called blueberry pancake. And that ended up, you know, being one of the most well-received beers at Firestone that year. Um, we, all we heard was, you know, how, how great it was from our yeah. members that were there and from the public that was there. So we, we scaled that beer up for an October, a small October release in this black Tuesday box that we do, or we started doing in 2019. Now that beer was received by our members in 2019 in in a small 375 milliliter bottle. It's been on draft a couple of times, and now we've done a double barrel aged version of it called Big Blue Stacks. It'll release this in September. But essentially, like when we hear the writing on the wall, so to sure. speak, you know, you don't have to see it. You just hear the clamoring of it. That's when that's when we know we're onto something. And it seems like it's a lower risk proposition. If somebody drinks a beer at a festival and you've made one keg of it, and then and they don't and it doesn't become a hit like the the stakes are lower on that like yeah. you haven't you know exactly yeah, so yeah. i think that essentially we we have this tier system you know of clubs so we can release something to a hoarders members and hear great feedback and know that'll work potentially for a general public right, if we get right. the abv right and we get the flavors right and we get the cost correct but essentially it's, we have these proving grounds and when you have all these other events that you got to make the special beers for and you listen to the people, then those ideas come forefront and they get higher in the mix, right? Now, there's other things that, that'll come, you know, based on, you know, beer we have in the cellar and what we need to do with it. Yeah. Um, where we'll find, we'll find treatments and we'll find opportunities and we'll find inspiration based on the flavors of a beer that we need to use versus, you know, 
driving into work and having a grand idea. Right, right. But I think that, you know, that really shows the talent of a team to say like, well, here, here's what we know we have to use. Here's what we want to do. How do we do these things together? You know? Yeah. That's really interesting that you could have barrel aged stock of beer that as it's in barrels, there's not a clear product that it's intended for that. Yeah. It's, you know, you want that and you're going to need that as a canvas of some sort for a beer in the future because there's this longer, long aging process to that's it. That's exactly it. Um, but that's a giant leap of faith yeah. to say, Hey, we're just going to put this in barrels. And then when it, we're going to decide what to do with it yeah. as it comes well, then, out. And that's essentially what it is because it, it is that long aging time. And we know as, as production managers and as, um, you know, makers, you know, what it takes for a beer and barrel. Yeah. But you know, our sales team and, and the office staff don't, don't necessarily understand what it takes for, for maturation to happen. Um, and that's okay because it, you know, they have their day job and they're good at sure. those things. Well, sure. You know, I happen to be really, really good at tasting something and understanding where it's going to go and when it's going to go. Yeah. And that, and that is something that I, you know, I, I brought from winemaking, right. like winemaking, we're aging wines three years in a barrel. We don't know what the wine's going to be. You know, there's, you know, not to get into a whole winemaking thing, but if sure. you drink a bottle of wine that says Cabernet Sauvignon on it, it only needs to be 75% Cabernet to right. be called that. So what do you think is in there? There's some Merlot in there. There's some other stuff in sure. there. And that's the blender's choice. But that all comes from understanding what a product can be or what right. you want it to be. So the concept is really, it's it might be foreign to some, and it might be foreign to even beer makers who don't, don't have quite the stock of beer that, that we right, have here at right. the brewery. But for me, it's like, I don't get scared by high volumes of beer. I get yeah. scared by um, tasting something and being, and being mixed up by it, not knowing where it's going to go. Generally speaking, I can taste something and, and know that it needs another six months and that it's going to do this or do that. And it comes from two places. It comes from a little bit of, uh, of history and learning, but it also comes from like having the freedom within your program to let things go a little bit longer. And mm -hmm. then once you have that, you can start pacing out what you think something will be yeah and then have the freedom to make it that that raises an interesting question because these are are driven by taste time and development and you need to evaluate those things to build beers from them um that becomes a very particular challenge when you have this much beer aging in barrels correct uh how many roughly how many how many barrels of beers is the brewery sitting on at any given point well, we're, we're a little lower now than we were um, a handful of years ago, but in the spirit barrel program, we have about 2,500 casks. Yeah. And then in the sour program, we have about 1,500. So we're about <sighs> we're about 4,000 casks right now. That's an insane amount of beer to yeah. then have to, you know, especially given that on the sour side in particular, from cask to cask, things can develop in very different ways. Oh, for sure. You know, how... And, and you don't have enough people. You couldn't have enough people to taste those frequently. What, how do you all evaluate that? What does that process look like of managing and understanding what these things are? Well, we use each beer uh, that we make as the opportunity to taste the beer that we have, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, which makes sense. I mean, that's a very articulate way of saying we taste all of our beer. <laughs> but sure, but sure. you're right. You got to piece it out. So, you know, say we're trying to create... Uh, it's like you're not going to taste 4,000 barrels no. like, you know, every month right. or, or even every two months. Right. Like, you know, there, but, there's, that has to be a more intentional plan for yeah. how we evaluate this. So essentially say we're going to brew or, or brew, excuse me, we're going to blend up uh, a release of our Ruse beer, which is our, you know, Goose style blend. Yeah. Um, we've been doing it for years. Um, it's a and, fantastic beer. And it's, you know, blended from four year, four year beer all the way down to one year beer. Um, but say we're gonna we're gonna blend. I think up. I still have a 2015 bottle of, of nice. ruse in, in my oh, own that personal. Was, that was my my first blend on okay. that one. But um, you know, essentially for that, we we would say we need 20 physical barrels for this beer. Yeah. We would taste probably 80 physical barrels of that blonde ale, um, blonde sour beer to to figure out that blend. So tasting those 80 barrels, we're taking notes on all of those. Those are going into our into our system for tracking and mm -hmm. that whatnot. So every time we do a beer like that, we're tasting through a plethora of other barrels. So right. eventually throughout the year, we get everything tasted, yeah. but it's not certainly a sit down and we're going to taste 300 barrels of this sour sure, beer. Sure. sure. Um, and then the, the beauty about, uh, about that is, uh, once you designate a beer to be bad, you don't ever have to taste it again. So yeah. that one, like, even though you may not dump it right away, that does fall out of your, yeah. like, 
programming like oh, okay that one's here's our stack of you know beer we don't know what to do with yet but right. it certainly is never going to make it to a keg or a bottle mm. um so those kind of fall out but um that's how we go uh, a little bit more complex on the sour side because we age beer so long over there yeah um, where the clean side you know generally speaking you know beer doesn't age really past two years there yeah. might be there might be a handful of products and projects that we age extended on purpose but generally speaking you know the beer the beer doesn't hold up right. that well you know if you have a 10 percent to 13 percent i don't care what kind of beer it is stout blonde right. wheat wine uh barley wine uh you know pushing three four years in barrel on a clean beer of that low abv just doesn't really yeah. I mean, they're susceptible to going bad too. Sure. You know, sure. It's, it's not, it's not a sour beer, but it can be, yeah. you know, <laughs> and if you hold it long enough, it probably will be. Yeah. In terms of, uh, let's say like forecasting, I mean, you, because you're putting beer into barrels at a pretty significant scale, like there becomes a quite a bit of financial risk from a business standpoint. Like if demand were to drop 10% or 15% or people's consumption modes change or tastes change for whatever reason over a year or two, like. It could be a lot of beer left over, and it's money that you've put into that, and that is you're paying for it in terms of ingredients, you're paying for it in terms of rent and time and space, and you know the barrels that you've had to buy. Like there's there's a lot invested in that. How um you know how do you manage that long term risk, uh, and un, and even build a plan for how much you're going to brew, knowing how much you might need a year or two from now. Yeah, that's that's probably the best question yet, and that's not there's no. Um there's no formula for that. You know, I think, you know, even if there was a formula that I had, it wouldn't work for any other brewery. It yeah. would be our thing. Um, now that said for us, I think one of the, one of the pressure relief valves that we have or a lever that we could pull is, is in our distro world yeah. um, where, you know, we, you know, we make a, we have our offshoot brand for IPAs that are out in distro. And then we have uh, a handful of core brewery beers that are in distro and then some seasonals as well. But what happens out in that world all the time is that the cool guys of the world know what other beer we make and they want it, you know? And but when I say the cool guys of the world, I mean like the, you know, the independent bars and the, the ones yeah. who just want, no, I don't, I don't want all of, I don't want one handle of everything you make in distro. I'll, I'll carry, you know, your relaxed IPA, but I, you know, I'd really love a chance at a, at a chocolate rain keg someday. Right. Um, and so I think we have that lever we can pull to say yeah. hey if we're a little bit long on beer now granted this is package beer sure we're not talking about barrel aged stock but right, barrel aged right. stock makes package beer yeah so if we know we have an avenue to get rid of it we can we can play in that in that world um that being said you know when i plan all of our beers every year i always leave place and space for the sweetness of beer design you yeah. know so like having those things where like, i don't know what we're going to do yeah but I know we're going to do a mashup using this barley wine, a little bit of this stout that I think we're a little long on, and blending that, putting rebarreling it into rum barrels, putting raisin puree in there or something, and you know, and creating other flavors. So right. I think like having an opportunity to leave leave some space between, you right, know, that right. gives us the opportunity to play that sweet that sweet music that that we like as production guys to see like, oh, we didn't have a plan for that, but we executed this beer amazingly sure, not having sure. a plan you know well, and sometimes that that kind of lack of a plan um you know creates unintended inspiration or you just taste something at the right moment and it comes to you and like that's what we need to do or um you know you're doing something with another beer and it inspires a, a different slightly different take or a very different take on something else that you do and and i think you're right like leaving space for that to evolve and, and become a natural thing is, is kind of fun yep um one of the things that I, I've talked to you before at Firestone Walker Invitational about was, um, you know, just the cost, especially of these single kegs. And so there's this process where if you're building that special beer for a one-off, you know, hoarders party release or special festival, you're, it's like you're in the, you know, black box skunk works, like you know, military, every, any expense is justified and you can just make it the best possible thing. And there's a process though, of going from how much can we spend on vanilla to like, well, we have to be responsible about this so that we can hit a price that our customer wants to pay for this. Talk to me a little bit about like moving in that creative process that, uh, you know, from the just make it the best thing that it can be to, to, 
figuring out how to, um, you know, accomplish that within, uh, you know, the, the kind of creative restraints that any brewery production yeah. and production and packaging is, is engaging in. Yeah. So I think there, there's a couple ways to go about that. And the way that I choose uh, usually has to do with sourcing and vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, if we find a uh, uh, adjunct rate that we think is great, that works best, uh, and let's use cacao nibs as an example. And this is just off the top of my head. Sure, but, sure. But say it's uh, eight pounds per BBL. Uh, we decide is our is our sweet spot, and that works for say chocolate rain, uh, which is a shoot. I believe it's a forty three dollar bottle. Um, that works for chocolate rain. That same amount of cacao nibs should work for an eight dollar bottle as well, um, and it can from a cost perspective if you get your price down per pound on your cacao nibs. So, you know, I don't think you could cheat flavor, but I, I think you can uh, find more creative ways to like source ingredients that will in turn, you know, affect the cost of the, of that adjunct rate you're spending at that point. Sure, and so sure. for one of the things we do there is we have a very uh, robust vendor list. So for cacao nibs, we probably use six to seven different vendors. Um, and some of them are really, really high end. And some of them are very, uh, you know, uh, free trade site specific, uh, you know, it's only nibs from, from this one small corner of the globe. Uh, and then there's other more broad, uh, you know, vendors that we use that, you know, really the, the sourcing, uh, is all about bulk pricing and about commodity pricing, not necessarily about, um, you know, this one specific corner of the, of the universe that it came from. And that's normal across all kind of packaged goods, food, beverage, sure. everything else that if you are, if the goal is to tell a story about the origin of those ingredients, yep. you know, and make that kind of organic free trade argument, and you find a customer that is willing to pay the premium in order to support that, then you do that. Exactly. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you can also make a product that uses your right similar amount but doesn't need that story and the cons- that consumer is less concerned with that approach and they are more concerned with getting it at a price that lets it be a part of their daily life. And, you know, those are both good strategies, yep. uh, even if it's right. That's kind of interesting. It could be the same amount of product yep. and just a, a different kind of tier of, of sourcing. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I think you see that with uh, vanilla beans as well. There'll be, you know, the grade A versus grade B. You see it in maple syrup as yeah. well. Um, and even with vanilla, you know, when it, you know, we're, we're very conscious of labeling as well. Right, Our right. bottle or can says something on it. That's, that's what we did. Sure. You know, um, and so, you know, in something like chocolate rain, it's always going to be cacao nibs and, and Madagascar vanilla beans. And that, that's what it says. That's what's in it, you know? Yeah. And then you buy, you know, a can of our bakery stout that you'll find in distro and it'll say natural vanilla flavor on it. Well, that's because it's an eight, $8 can of pastry right. stout. And we, we had to use vanilla extract on that sure. to get our price where we needed it. So I think there, there is an example of, you know, you have a natural vanilla extract and then you have mm-hmm. a vanilla bean and one is one costs one thing and one costs another thing. Right. There's a, there's a little bit of difference between the two, but you know, what's th- the same, like the vanilla flavor part of it. I yeah. mean, you can tell yeah. a little bit, but generally speaking, that's how we, that's how you can accomplish that, that price tier. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, um, you know, again, sometimes it's even the same customer that just wants the different occasion for consuming that and the mode that they may consume a can of a sweet pastry or dessert stout is different than what that mode of consumption might be with a 20% or your 18%, uh, you know, bottle built for sharing with friends. Like, exactly. you know, you're, those are separate occasions, even if it's the same exact customer and that customer may want a different price point and approach at times that, that $8 can just makes it feel like something that they can open for themselves exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, right. and enjoy. And you want to provide both of those experiences. You can do that within, even within the same brand idea sure. of the brewery. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of, uh, you know, some of the more direct brewing, uh, you know, means. And, and I definitely want to kind of continue to dive into that wine background, because uh, I think you all have done some really, really creative 
wine beer hybrids that we can talk about. And then we can also talk about how some of those, the brewing of, of these uh, cleaner barrel aged beers has, has kind of changed for you all. Sure. Before we do that, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So, Jeremy, let's talk about some of the the wine beer hybrid experiments. It's been years that we've been talking about this, and yet I still see so many in the brewing space. Uh, and in fact, just yesterday I was talking to another brewer here in uh, the the metro LA area about how they're getting into winemaking. It's a, it's a side interest. And of course, Patrick Rue now uh, uh, owns a, a small winery. Um, there's yeah, crazy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's this kind of cyclical give and take for all of this. Uh-huh. Um, and so that wine, wine is a component, uh, you know, something that many, many brewers are, are find inspiration in and you all have found some creative ways to blend those worlds of wine and beer uh, talk to me about some of the those projects that you're more excited about on the brewery side that that bring those two worlds together yeah i think uh, one of the things we do here at the brewery and and you know it's something that the brewery's working on beer wine hybrids for for years sure, um sure. and years before i got here um but one of the things with with me coming um and the history of beer and wine hybrids is you know i mean stretches back to to belgium itself and there are some fantastic examples yeah. even of you know of lambic and goose makers who also make these fantastic blends of, of beer and wine right um you know the brewery was doing beer and wine hybrids you know for years years before i got here but one of the things that i did when i was here was you know apply my skill set and so we started doing things a little bit differently um and, and part of that was about actually doing full 100% co-fermentations on this stuff. So everything was, uh, you know, unfermented must, uh, with wort being brewed specifically on the day that we got it for that. And then, you know, we started doing that. Then I started, you know, applying a cold maceration time to our fruit when we got it the same way that a winemaker would. Um, a lot of winemakers will bring fruit in they'll let it macerate cold pre uh, fermentation. And then they, they light it up for fermentation, you know, three or four days later. Um, and basically what that does is give you some color extraction, a little bit of extra, um, tannin as well. But we started doing that here and then treating everything like an actual wine fermentation. So we would do punch downs on, on the wort and pomace mix. Um, we would, uh, you, we do use a press, you know, so yeah. we actually, we actually press it through a press, you know, uh, no regard for oxidation or anything that you would have, you know, with the finished beer, um, and then everything goes from that press, you know, into barrel. Um, generally speaking, on the clean side, we we use brand new punchins every year for that. Um, so we always use a lot of fresh oak on it. Uh, on the sour side, we obviously use, uh, you know, sour barrels. Um, but generally speaking, we're trying to blur that line as much as possible. Like I want something to taste more like a wine than it does a beer. Um, that being said, you know, there are other projects that we've done that we essentially blended in extra barrels of black Tuesday to bring the stoutiness up. Sure. We thought it was too wine forward, but generally speaking, we treat everything like, like its own project. It's not, it's not a blending tool that we use later. We don't make wine and then make beer and then blend them together to try to make a great, right. great thing. It's a, it's a concept from, from day one through fermentation, uh, through maturation storage and then bottling. And then that's a big part of what we do too. We bottle everything like a wine. So we bring in a mobile wine line. Um, we bottle under cork, um, everything's still. And, you know, it, it's, it's made and on made and on purpose supposed to like get you to think wine when you drink it. Talk to me about, uh, and what are, what are some of the ones we're talking about? I, I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned that you are doing wine beer hybrids, both on the sour side and you are doing them with, as blends of quote unquote clean beer where, um, you know, where that acidity is not a, a giant component of it. Um, right. you know, talk to me about those pathways that this takes. Yeah. Well, so for that too, so here's, the, here's the main difference. Uh, when we do clean beer wine hybrids, um, we actually pitch yeast to them. 
And so, what would be some of the names for, for so those the, beers? So the clean ones would be uh, Black Tuesday based. Uh, before um, before I started working on them, they were called Winification. Okay. So it was Winification 1, 2, and 3. Um, and then we started, we changed that name to Vindictive, and we did Vindictive a couple of times. And then we started doing the still products. The still products were Yount, uh, Elizabeth Rutherford, Thomas Rutherford, the Rutherfords, and then a new one that comes out this year called J.D. Harris. And essentially those are still, like packaged still and wine bottle versions of a Black Tuesday hybrid. Um, so the, basically with that one, it's, it's Black Tuesday wort put into the must, and then it's, it's inoculated with our house Belgian brewing yeast, so our really high-gravity fermenting yeast. Yeah. Um, so essentially what we do is we overpitch that. Um, we're trying to basically ward off any, any weird, uh, sure. wild fermentation stuff that might happen. Yeah. Which, which is certainly it, could come in with Which grapes. certainly could, but that's why we want to hit it hard, hit it fast and get it fermenting. Um, the difference on the, on the true side is everything we do over there is a native fermentation. So we're not actually pitching anything to the fermentation. Hmm. So it's essentially wart and it's a wart that's brewed, um, in a lambic style, uh, in other words, not not turbid, but style stylistically lambic style with aged hops, um, and the hops are acting as a little bit as an inhibitor to the bacterial growth. Um, but essentially, we are putting that wort like right on top of grapes and letting it sit there for two to three days until it starts fermenting on its own. And it's the microflora from the grape skins that's doing the fermentation. Hmm. So generally speaking, those those. Uh, I'm saying generally speaking a lot, huh? I've said that like 10 <laughs> times already, so I'm going to stop doing that. That's that's my cue to myself to stop doing that. But, sure. But we have uh, done that, shoot, I think maybe eight times on different beers, Boreal Noir, Alicante, uh, Graciano, several other um, white wine beers that we've done as well. But those beers aren't necessarily sour. So they're not, I mean, they're made in a sour facility, but, you know, they, they taste more like wine. You know, wine is sour sure but it's not sure. really sour you know but it has acid acidity as a component to it yeah sure. just like i mean beer is acidic you know sure. you don't you don't really taste it that way but orange juice is acidic exactly and more so but you know anyway like it that's the main difference it's right. one one is inoculated one isn't uh one is a little more caution to the wind than the other but they are designed to be like wine and taste more like wine than beer so as you make it that way you are depending on that kind of natural fermentation to get the job done. Correct. Uh, and there's a risk factor to that. But like like any brewer or winemaker, you also want to create a positive environment for good things to yep. happen uh, so that you can steer it and not just, you know, cast all hope to the wind. Like, you know, what, what are some of those key factors that you, as you're getting into co-fermentation, you find help those that natural uh, uh occurring yeast and microorganisms to well, to do you know help along in that fermentation yeah well you're right i mean you know things like to ferment yeah you know and it's not it's not really not gonna happen unless there's something in there that's that's deleterious to fermentation right and generally those things you can smell you know now granted i know that you know, running nitrogen and running some analytical data to tell you like what your what your levels are can help you lead you to a to a healthier fermentation. But I think that just some subtle little tricks along the way can can get you there as well. So when I start to smell, um, you know, fermentation byproducts on the wild side that I'm not keen on, yeah, like it's very it's very winemaker like in in me to think about okay what does it need it needs a couple different it, it potentially mm -hmm. could need a couple things it's almost like uh you know a mechanic going to an engine that won't start all right i need uh, i need compression i need spark and i need fuel you know yeah. um the same thing can be said with fermentation and especially with these wild native fermentations that if you're getting um you know a little bit of nail polish like aroma coming off the fermentation uh if a you're probably a little hot You've got uh, some precursor coming of some really bad acetic behavior you're going to see yeah. later. Um, so the best thing we could do right now is to get this thing aerated, like get the cap pushed down. Let's get a pump over going. Let's get air into this thing. Let's help. Let's do what we can do to give oxygen to this to this fermentation. Now, generally, if this was in a uh, a clean stainless tank, you know, and this was a, a uh, any, any beer you're brewing, you know, you'd probably hit it with an oxygen tank, give it a little pulse, you know, and try to sweeten it up a little bit that way. But 
when when you're in a wild fermentation cellar and you're doing open top fermentations that's not really how you do anything you just you get your tools out and you get into it and you you move you move Mm. the wart you move the pomace you make things happen um that being said more oxygen is the solution to that that one yeah more oxygen is solution and then uh also uh i do use some winemaking products on these on these beers um and again, I call them beers because they're fifty-one percent beer. But mm-hmm. I use uh, some some uh, fermentation uh, feeding type stuff from Lalamont. Mm-hmm. I use a, a Fermate O. It's a oxygen uh, organic uh, yeast uh, food, if you will. Yeah. So yeah. feeding the yeast, getting the yeast healthy. Now that that's the difference, right? When I say it's a native fermentation, you're working with microflora that's from the grape skins, right? You're not working with a cultured yeast strain that's been built. Sure. Over many generations right, right. to be strong, you know, you're, you're you're trying to aid these these things that may want to work, may not want to work on. So, um, just having a couple little tricks in your in your in your trade, if you will, and then understanding that the only t- the right time to fix a fermentation issue is right when you notice it, not yeah. two days later, because by that point it's too late. Sure. But I mean, that I'm a big I'm a big sensory fermentation manager quite honestly if i walk through a cellar and i smell something like i stop to figure out what it is either it's coming out of a a blow-off bucket or it's coming out of the drain you know and if i could figure out it's coming out of the drain i feel a lot better about it because it's just you know <laughs> drain stink sure, you know sure but sure. you know your fermentation shouldn't stink yeah so, but it's about just getting on it and applying your, your skills as you're doing these wild fermentations what you know what kind of temperature ranges do you you typically ferment in well you know if it's in a tank, like it's all, it's all set, you know, we could be anywhere from, um, you know, 62 degrees to 74 degrees, depending on the project. You know, yeah. I did a, I did a, a beer with uh Corey King at side project where we fermented, I think at like 60 degrees, this Brett fermentation that mm-hmm. took shit. It took like a month. It should have taken a week if we had done it normally, <laughs> but sure. But sure. He, him and I, or he was actually very, very much like, no, we want to get these certain aromatic you know, compounds out. So this is what we're going to do. Um, but when you're open top, thanks Corey for yeah. making it take four times <laughs> yeah. as long, but when you're open top fermenting, like a lot of times you don't have that control of temperature. Sure, your, sure. your only control of temperature is letting heat out, you know? So if, if you could do, if you could up your punch downs for, um, for the day, instead of doing one in the morning and one in the evening, you could do one in the, in the middle of the afternoon, that's going to release some heat as well. Um, also the pump overs help a lot, but, that's a tricky game, especially if you're worried about a fermentation, because, uh, you know, just like <laughs> I use this a lot, but just like in hot rods, you know, heat is horsepower. You yeah. want a hot engine and fermentation like heat, heat is a good thing. Like it, it could yeah. be it could be really bad if it's if it's not controlled, but it means it's working. And sometimes when you slow something down on purpose, you can't get it back. Up, yeah. You know, so. No, no, I, I I know what you're saying. Like some of these are, are fragile fermentations where if you try to overmanage it, then yeah. uh, you can ultimately shoot yourself in the foot around that. Exactly. I think there's there is a there's a little bit of a freewheeling nature that that I have working at the brewery. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is because I'm I'm given that that ability to fail. Mm-hmm. And so like having the ability to just be like, hey, you know, I, I think it's gonna be okay, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Right. Um, and knowing that, you know, the, that's not going to be the one decision that, sure, that, sure. <laughs> that dooms the company. Like there's a lot of freedom with them. Right. Right. Um, talk to me. One of the things I really enjoy is the way that you all have certainly, you know, over the years that I've been drinking your beer, acidity has been able to come down to a more measurable place and a more balanced place, uh, compared to those earliest days of sour beer sure. where everyone was just, you know, punching the teeth kind of, you know, acidity. Um, that's been a nice trend to watch, but at the same time, you've also, um, found a way to produce an attractive funk component as a balance to, um, you know, that kind of acidity and other flavors in these beers. Talk, talk to me about that. Um, you know, dialing that in and building that really pleasant funk piece to it is some of the difference between just singular fruity acidic beers and something that recalls that those kind of Belgian origins of these beers. And for something like Ruse, um, that funk is such an important component of it. Achieving that has, has been very hard for a lot of American brewers. Talk to me about how you all 
optimize towards that and think about developing that funk character? Yeah. Um, again, like you got some really great questions and this is one that could easily, you know, take the rest of my time. Sure. I'm going to try to like get yeah. through it in a way okay. that, that doesn't, but, uh, you know, I'll just tell you that, you know, when we started Taru and I, and I started working here at the brewery, uh, as this winemaker coming in and, uh, feeling like everybody's eyes are on me. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a new brand, uh, taking some of the breweries, you know, greatest hits over the years sure, and, and sure. rebranding them, uh, at least, you know, under the true moniker and, and taking over for, you know, uh, Patrick Rue and, and Tyler King, who, you know, were both, you know, heroes of mine at the time. Sure. Um, my whole plan was to not screw it up, you know, and just to, <laughs> right, right. I wanted to make Oud Tart taste like Oud Tart and yeah. Ruse taste like Ruse and Sour in the Rye and Tart of Darkness the same, you know? Um, and that was really, really important because if they didn't taste the same and, and, you know, this guy with the long hair and a beard, you know, screwed up our favorite beer and sure, it wouldn't have worked. Um, so I, I felt like even though I had freedom, I, I felt like this great responsibility to not do anything too crazy. Right, like I, right. Let's make the barrels cleaner. Let's make the bungs look better. Let's, you know, let's organize things. Let's get, you know, but let's not change the beer. Well, that lasted about 18 months um, <laughs> sure. to where then I was like, no, I gotta, I, the, you know, you had to spend some time, earn, yeah. the, earn the respect before, you know, before you start yeah. to make the changes. But, you know, so I started yeah. looking at things a little bit differently and I, uh, I was feeling that we wouldn't, we didn't have, uh, quite, quite the program that I wanted as far as, uh, farmhouse beers and, right. and some of the things that I wanted to do. Um, so I, I found, uh. I found a deal on some fooders and I bought, I bought seven fooders from uh, Bonnie Dune uh, winery in Santa Cruz. Um, and when we bought those, you know, Patrick was like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I want to make some different Brett Ford saisons. I want to make a grisette. I want to make, you know, I want to make some of these things that I think will, will really round us out during that same time. You know, we're looking at why our beer is so sour. And, and a lot of it was, you know, due to extended barrel aging and time in barrel. Um, and so we were a little upside down on, on volumes as far as like what we had aging versus what we needed. Sure. Um, and then having four years of aging beer for what we need next year is, you know, it's just a hard thing to get out of, but yeah. we started cutting back on, on a little bit of what we we're brewing. And then we started like just creating newer beers, uh, that were blended, um, you know, 80%, Saison uh, and 20% sour beer to make a, you know, a beer de coupage, if you will. Um, and doing some sour beer that way, which in turn lowered our acidity and made the beer more drinkable and also like brought down the cost of the beer. Yeah. Um, so I think that thing that worked really well for us. And then another thing that we started doing was playing with uh, our bottle conditioning yeast and not, not doing everything the same, you know? So for instance, like Ruse, you know, Ruse is our, our house uh, sour culture, but it's bottle conditioned with Brett Lambicus. And part of the reason that it has the Brett Lambicus is that ode to you right. know, the Lambic sure, area. Sure. So um, using some of these different bottle conditioning yeasts has helped, yeah. you know, develop this funk flavor. And also like bringing down that acidity has made room for it. You know, when it's a beer is just overly acidic and covered up with fruit and whatnot, yeah, it yeah. just, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at that point what you condition it with because it's already as aromatic as it can be and flavorful as it can be. Yeah. And those are really aggressive flavors, you know? So, uh, acid is, it's not easy to, to win against, you know? So, um, part of the deal was just creating new things and then having a, having a diversity in our cellar, um, that I think is really, you know, manifested itself in the beer changing over time. And then it's all about how do we change on the adjunct side of it? Like, right. you know, are we still doing, you know, are we going to do a frambois? beer every year and i say no you know i don't think i don't think that's something that we should do you know i think it should mm. be you know uh a little more esoteric and not necessarily so um so belgian-esque you know yeah, like, yeah. So, so this year we've done a lot of like tiki cocktail style <laughs> sure sure style uh sours which i think have been really fun Tiki is very hot right now in, in brewer circles, for sure, oh, yeah. for sure. Um, to to set that Brett Lambicus up for its funk production, uh, you know, is there 
you know, do you try to tilt precursors in, in certain ways uh, by making, you know, malt choices or, or other fermentation kind of decisions around it, hopping? Or what are the, you know, what's that look like? For, um, th- for what's really the question? Yeah, for, for a funky beer okay. like Ruse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so for... L- Lambicus, you know, is if that's doing the heavy lifting on, on your funk production, you want to give it things to work with that are going to push it in the right direction or those what do those look like or is that like again hop choice is that malt components no uh, i mean i think i think for some beers yes for for that yeah. beer in general no um and that's strictly because you're getting all of your diversity from your barrel selection mm. no so remember that's a a goose style blend so yeah yeah we we do have a little bit of older beer in our cellar so we're actually using four-year-old beer as well mm-hmm. four-year three-year two-year and one-year-old beer and with those barrel selections, we're looking for, for different flavors, right? We're, right. we're going to get some beautiful barrels in there that are sure, going to have like sure. a uh, stone fruit character. Th- those are going to be evidence, right? Yeah. But there's going to be some not beautiful barrels in there that have like a geranium flavor mm-hmm. or have maybe even like a like geranium is one of the good ones. What's the other one I'm thinking of? But more <laughs> of like a, a, a an olive, um, you know, kind of a Kalamata olive sort uh-huh. of flavor to them. And now when I first started here, I would think that the, those flavors were not nice and that they wouldn't complement a beer. But believe me when I tell you that those flavors, when they all do come together, do actually complement each other. And that's part of how we build um, the fiercity of that beer. So the Lambicus in that for the bottle conditioning is just the, like that top funk note. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the most of the other flavors are coming from the barrel blend. Mm. Now, that's different when we get into like a fooder beer. So when we get into fooder beer uh, and what we do with fooder beers, we don't necessarily do hugely sour beers on that. As a matter of fact, we kind of do the opposite so that we have a blending stock that right. we could use with the sour beer. Now, that is not necessarily controlled by uh, the malts that are used, uh, although we can get super crazy with the different styles of wheat malts we use sure, and, sure. And, and everything to make that beer very special. But really where it becomes one of our fooder beers is in its bitterness. That's IBU. We try to keep its IBU over, over 40, somewhere between really? 40 and 50. Okay. And the reason for that is, is to keep that antimicrobial. So we're, we're basically trying to make it so it doesn't want to go sour. Yeah. It'll age in a fooder for a year without trying to go sour. And the reason we want that is, A, we don't want it sour. B, if we can keep that bitterness in there, we can then use that as the cross blending tool with the sour beer. So mm-hmm. when we blend that beer with the sour beer, what do we end up with? We end up with less acidity, but we're also adding a little bit of bitterness to it too. Yeah. So we're getting a duality there from that beer that we wouldn't have gotten if that was all in different barrels. Um, so I, I think generally we use those types of techniques more than we use like a, a malt would, would give sure. us a certain flavor. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to talk about, the kind of shifting uh, approach to bigger, richer, higher gravity, clean beers. Sure. Um, and we're, we're getting on in time here. So I don't want to, don't want to miss out on yeah, that. Yeah. We teased it at the top. We've got to deliver on this. Let's do it. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, that, uh, you know, for the long history of, of a beer like black Tuesday, which, which the brewery is known for, um, you have built a, a, an approach to brewing that is very high gravity. That's, you know, 17, 18, 20, 21%. Um, and it's a, a fermentation that you feed at, you know, on the cold side using, uh, you know, for highly fermentable sugars that are then added into that process. Um, that, you know, but that creates a kind of beer, um, that now, you know, is starting to, uh, in, the vogue is towards more thickness, sure. more bigger, bigger body, yep. a lot of residual sweetness. Um, you know, the beers that you've done in the past have gotten pretty dry, even though you are adding that much sugar into that fermentation. It is, you know, because you are using your crazy <laughs> attenuative yeast, like yep. it's ripping through that, even at those high ABVs. Talk to me a little bit about how you all have, again, looking at where these this kind of trends in barrel aged clean beer has been going how you all have been adjusting and thinking and and working to uh, build beers that hit people who want those things in in certain and different kinds of ways yeah so i you know i think one of the things that uh maybe folks don't know is that you know our black tuesday and our our so happens is tuesday um two of our big workhorses in our in our spirit barrel cellar um, are both high gravity beers, um, but they're both really dry. Like they're, 
you know, under two Play-Doh. Usually they, really? usually they come out at half Play-Doh to one and a half Play-Doh. Some, you know, some, some batches that, that trail a little bit, maybe in the two Play-Doh range, but generally speaking, they're really dry. Um, now they, they didn't taste so dry, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but that's because everybody's palate was a little bit different. So sure, they used, they used sure. to call these beers that we made dessert beers. Um, and I always thought that was kind of weird, especially when the pastry beer comes out and then that's, that's a, now a pastry dessert beer than what makes our beer dessert beer. Either way, no matter what, I think those beers are really, really cool. And I think they're really good. But, um, you know, we had a little bit of a no new base beer in the brewery spirit cellar thing going on for a while. Uh, I should have used air quotes there, but yeah, it just seemed like, you know, we had, you know, the usual suspects, but we didn't have anything new. Um, and a couple of years ago, and since bl- blending is such a big piece of the inspiration for yeah, you all, you know, maybe, but, yeah. but I wanted some new pieces, you know, uh, whether or not they'd be pieces that never made their way out on their own, um, or whether they would be, um, you know, standalone base beers, but essentially we started, you know, about three years ago looking at, um, you know, what everybody was drinking, the pastry stout thing was, was, was big and, and we were being forced to make them, you know, not forced in a, in a bad way, but we knew that, you know, people wanted them. So we were turning them out in, in stainless and, and selling them in cans. And so we, we started putting some away and in barrels and we came up with a, a couple new base beers that we're pretty happy with, but, but you're right. You know, people have, the consumer has changed. And so we've, you know, made a very concerted effort to, um, try to, you know, create some of these beers with intention as opposed to just taking black Tuesday and back sweetening the hell out of it, <laughs> making, making it sure. thick and calling right. and calling it a different beer, um, which we easily could have done, but I thought it was uh, paramount that we, we figure out, you know, what's next here at the brewery because, you know, Black Tuesday isn't going anywhere. It's going to be here forever. Um, or at least I hope so. I think it's a great beer, but it can't be everything all the time. And we're not growing as brewers if we're not figuring out what, you know, if we're not figuring out the next trend or at least playing with the next trend, then we're not, we're not doing the right things. Yeah. So, uh, talk to me about some of those different base directions. Like how do they differ from, you know, the, the kind of Black Tuesday base that you've always been known for? Yeah, so for one of the one of the things we're doing is we're doing, you know, a couple different enzyme type fermentations. Mm. So like treating with an enzyme and then using our Cali yeast strain instead of our, our Belgian yeast strain yeah. to like actually get the fermentation where we want it and actually get the ABV, yeah. um, which has always been a challenge for us. But without the same kind of ester profile. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, just letting some of these things go to barrel that that we hadn't in the past, you know, like we have a, a base beer that we use, uh, to create our bakery, um, beer with, and that's something that we'd never had barrel aged before. Um, and we started doing that, but, but ideally it's, it's Does about using that enzyme allow you to kind of dial in a different, like an exact attenuation level versus, you know, where your well, Belgian beast. Will... Well, I think, I think, uh, it should yeah. allow that. Um, we haven't been, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we haven't been great batch to batch on achieving that yet. Um, but and that, have you had different finishing goals for some of these? Um, yes, we have. Um, and the, but there's also the there's also like those experiments that were early on that didn't go quite well. Sure, you know. Sure. So there's those, and we have those with everything. You know, every time we try a new process, whether it be um, a new feeding regimen with you know Black Tuesday, where this time we're using honey or maple syrup instead of dextrose, uh, those things don't always go as well as you want them to go. So we have some. We have some barrels, you know, kicking around that are uh, weird, weird and looking for the looking for that uh, space between that I was describing earlier. Sure. Um, You know, what does that then look like? What do you what do you find yourself, you know, pushing out there into the into that blending stock then? You know, if you've got your normal like two Play-Doh Black Tuesday uh, regular base or, or, you know, are you what's the range of other kind of finishing gravities and, and yeah. fermentations look like? Yeah. So we have a, a couple other base beers right now. Uh, one we're calling, uh, the monster stout, the monster, Yeah, which is just a, in internal name. Uh, and then another one we're calling bayonet, uh, for fun. Um, cause it'll get you, but, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, 
Those beers are, you know, they're 14%. These are like Lockheed, you know, yeah. uh, plane names, you know, for, for stuff that's uh, yeah. new fighter jets that right. are in development. I love it. But they're like, you know, 14% in barrel yeah. and they're, you know, 12, 12, 13 Play-Doh in barrel. So a little bit, a little bit different and something that we're not going to have to bring out and, and really like try to back sweeten and, and, sure, and do sure. any of that stuff with. From which two is, to 12 and 13, that's a, it's a range. It, no, it's a huge difference. Um, and but it's a tool that's that's going to give us, you know, sure, sure, what we need. I think another thing that we have right now that I that I think seems to be maybe the largest allotment that we've had since I've been here is is different spirit barrels. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we've been building up like gin stock and tequila stock and rum, rye, cognac, sherry, Madeira. Like we've been doing some really cool stuff sure. there. So I have some I have some stuff planned for next year where. Um, I think we're going to have some really unique uh, blended stouts that are that are kind of getting away from this the bourbon barrel mm-hmm. thing. Um, and and when I say getting away from the bourbon barrel thing, it's not it's not that it won't have bourbon. It just won't be bourbon forward, you know. But mm. it'll have a mixture of spirits and stuff. And sure. I, I think playing with all these different barrels has, has been a lot of fun. I was talking to uh, uh, Marty and Jim of Revolution, you know, a while back on the podcast, and and they were talking about brewing. Uh, at an accident where they accidentally brewed an incredibly high gravity beer, but as, as they put it into barrels, realized that that aging it aged differently than their their typical stock. Have you found again since you're used to aging a an incredibly um, yeah intensely alcoholic beer that's really good at extracting characters from the barrel, but at, then at different gravities? You know how does that aging change in spirits barrels? Um, given these different base beers? Oh, it certainly does. Uh, but I, I can tell you that, um, you know, the, the stouts that are, that are fermented with Cali and uh, don't have um, stressful fermentations that aren't being fed and manipulated, um, they taste so much different coming out of fermenter mm-hmm. than a Black Tuesday does. So yeah. a Black Tuesday, like, absolutely needs a year in barrel. There's no, I mean, it's just not really... Yeah, it's a stressed beer. It's it's hot. It's thin. Uh, it really needs that time and barrel to like manipulate it and change it into something that's that's drinkable. Whereas I think the Cali fermented stouts just have a much quicker maturity level. So a good explanation or or, or window into seeing what that actually is like is I got a I got a call from uh, from Pete at, at Garage Project. Uh, two months ago and he was like hey you know a couple years ago we brewed this high gravity beer with the brewery we didn't like it we put it in barrels forgot about it he's like i just tasted it it's 20 months old and he's like it's fantastic you know and i, th- and I was yeah. like yeah i'm not surprised because right. that kind of beer that's a, that's the only way it will be fantastic is if you hold it so i think we have a couple different things going on here yeah. um but you know generally speaking if you're going to manipulate a beer uh you know, the barrel is, is where it needs to go. So you can, yeah. you can actually let it mature. What's, uh, as we're getting on in time here, I want to ask the, that kind of big picture question. What, uh, what's the future hold for the brewery? What are you excited about exploring next? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the continued ongoing goal for the brewery as a business? Yeah. So, you know, I could speak for, for myself on, you know, I'm, I'm excited about our team. And you know, yeah. grow, growing our our next our next group of brewers, um, you know, we just you know have come out of a the last year and a half that that everybody's been in, right, uh, and right. it's been difficult. Um, but we've actually held our heads pretty high and have done pretty well. Uh, but within that is is you know how do we how do we get this team you know to grow to the next level? Um, and that's you know that's my job here, and that's that's what I'm working on. But the future of the brewery is bright if I can build that team, right? Yeah. So that team is what's gonna ride this place into the next 10 years. And I think we've we've done a lot uh, over the last 13 years, but I think the future is pretty bright and our, our goals of, you know, getting offshoot out there into more uh, more hands is, is completely doable. Um, it's important to me that we don't lose track of, you know, what's been accomplished, who's accomplished it before us, and then we hold that in reverence, but you know, the future is bright. There's a lot of beer to be made. Um, 
and you're going to keep experimenting at it and trying to find new ways yeah. to, to make uh, these things that people are familiar with and exactly. add some layers and add to some it. layers. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. GD chillers will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. Pathfinder and pure seltzer nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. Pro fill can fillers from Pro Brew use rotary counter pressure filling to hit speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbring.com, click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider our all-access subscriptions that mix up magazines with the digital content and uh, exclusive breaking stories that we deliver via email and the web only for subscribers from folks like uh, Kate Bernat and Stan Hieronymus and Ben Keen and others. Um, Jeremy, if people want to learn more about the brewery, where do they find you all? Oh, you can go to thebrewery.com. Uh, you can also hit us on That's Instagram. That's B-R-U-E-R-Y. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell sure. you a story about that. <laughs> you guys know why it's... I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can also find us on Instagram, at the brewery, and at Offshoot Beer Co. Yeah, it was fun That's to talk up. to you about, Brandon. It's just great to see you in general. It's great to see you, Jamie. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.